Well, I am, I'm kind of glad I get to be here the week after Easter. Let me confess, I mean, I love Easter. I'm not a heretic. I love Easter. And I, I, the story is about Easter, and I love looking forward to Easter. But I will admit that I don't do well post big events. Like, I don't know if it's my physiology, I don't know if it's my theology, I don't know what it is, but I tend, I tend to crash after I've had some exuberant experience, something I've looked forward to. And when, quite honestly, when I'm wanting to experience what it feels like everybody else is experiencing, and then sometimes inside it, I feel like, I don't know that I get it like they get it. Or I'm, am I different? One of the reasons I love the Bible, and one of the reasons I think it's so true is because it it keeps happening. And I also think that if if the Bible were were some kind of Christian propaganda, there's a lot of stories I am certain I would have left out. (laughs) And this is one of them. This is one of those stories that I would, um, I don't think I would put in here. It, it's interesting because it, it just so happens almost chronologically, we don't know exact, but it's about a week after the resurrection of Jesus that we read the story of somebody who I believe is, is like us. Uh, the, story, um, the story begins, the story I'm going to read you begins actually in a, in a, in a different way one of the different Gospels. I'm going to read just a short snippet from Matthew that will set up the story of Peter and and Peter's restoration. But just so you understand, um, this is, and all of a sudden, it's, oh, Matthew 26, 31. Yeah, okay, I was was just, I was was pedaling as long as I could till I found it, and I couldn't, so I just had to own that I forgot where it was. All right. Yeah. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. That's an important little insertion. And then let's go over to John chapter 21. I assume you perhaps know the story that Peter, in fact, did live out what Jesus predicted would happen. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cain of Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. 
Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself in the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so would the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. I don't know if you, you struggle sort of with the, the post-Easter blues, but I'm going to see if I can give you some things that... I, I believe this passage might help us with. To begin, I would encourage you to purge the idea in your mind that there's any such thing as a good Christian. The belief that there is such a thing as a good Christian will in fact work against you. I like how it says in Matthew 26, in that, the, the last part of what I read, he said, even if I die with you, I will never disown you. Peter is known for that statement. Peter is known throughout sort of Christian history as the one who denied Jesus. But we forget this little sentence, and all the other disciples said the same thing. All the other disciples said exactly the same thing. I'll never deny you. I'll, I'll be with you. Today. And I think every disciple since that day has said exactly the same thing. There has been a moment in our lives where we, we have thought, we believe truly, I could never deny Jesus. I could never give up on you. And all of us have experienced those words coming back to us. And in an instant, big or small, we've all denied when I, became a, when I became a Christian um, in ninth grade, I, I, I became a, a Christian through the route of a fundamentalist, independent Baptist sort of movement. 
That's what I attach to. And, and, and because of that, I, I, I really early on became obsessed with being a good Christian. I had really not been good at much anything else in my life. And I discovered in ninth grade that, hey, here's something I think I can do better than other kids. I can be, like, I can letter in being a Christian at high school. And I could carry a big Bible. And, and, and part of that whole thing was we, um, we, we didn't listen to any what was called secular music. We only listened to Christian radio, and I only had an AM radio, so I listened to, it was called KPOF, and it was almost always preachers, but there was this, there was this radio program from Moody Bible Institute called, and this is how they announced it at every, every day, Stories of Great Christians. And I loved Stories of Great Christians. And they were stories of great Christians, but now, over all these years, I'm looking back, what they were, they were stories stories of parts of people's lives that they are willing to be told. Right? They are not stories of the whole Christian, but just the pieces that I like everybody to know about. And they're great stories. But I, I began to believe that that's what real Christians look like, these edited versions and now I know that it's, well, more hashtag, you just didn't get caught. <laughs> I went into Bible college wanting to be a, a great Christian. As a young man in a, in a fundamentalist movement, a big part of being a great Christian had to do with um, the story around sexuality. And I was winning the purity race. It, well, in my mind, I was winning. In looking back in reality, I was socially awkward, and, and what I perceived to be my great chastity was, in fact, nobody was going to be willing to be with me, but that, that, that didn't matter to me. I, um, I just felt pretty good about all that. And I went into Bible college and, and still trying to create this persona of a super great Christian, and I'm, gonna, I'm just sharing with you some honest stuff. Like, I, I, was, I got so good at it. I went to this little Bible college. I was a nobody in high school, but I was super Christian in this little Bible college. And I may be the only person in history who has been the freshman class president two years in a row. <laughs> I went to a little Bible college in Montana for a semester, and I got elected freshman class president there. And then I left that school, and then I didn't have enough credits to quite be a sophomore when I went to Western Bible College, where I graduated, and I was elected freshman class president two years in a row, but I didn't tell anybody that I had already been a freshman class president the year before because I only tell stories of great Christians. Anyhow, um, <laughs> and so I can, st I still remember the day. I still remember the day I was in my little VW bug that I had named Evangeline because it was the feminine for evangelist. And I, and she carried the good news. I'm just telling you, this is how serious this crap was to me, all right? And so I am driving down this dirt road into our Bible college, and there is just, we'd only, I'd only you know, been there that freshman year, about a month, and there is this, this um, beautiful girl runs by me. And, and I'd seen her before, and I thought, oh my gosh. Um, so I ran to my, I, I, I ran to my, dorm room, I, I, I got my Bible, and I went and sat in the grass with my Bible, looking like I was doing my devotions, knowing that this is where she would have to run back. <laughs> a week later or so, a friend introduced us, and we began to date. 
and I had my very first girlfriend. And she was everything I'd ever dreamed of. She was incredibly beautiful, an amazing singer. She was, get this, she went to a huge high school in Texas, huge high school, and she was voted the most popular girl in her high school as a senior. And she's dating me because I am a super Christian. I am winning. Well, I had never had a girlfriend. And, um, and I couldn't, by willpower, keep some of the dark part of my story and some of my persona, I couldn't keep it subdued. In our college at that time, even the slightest infraction of the morality rules would mean an immediate six-month expulsion. And so after that first moment where we went just a little bit too far and I freaked out and filled with shame, but I was so scared to tell anybody. I couldn't tell anybody. So we prayed harder and we prayed harder. and We vowed we'd never let it happen. But I noticed that there was something that I had never gotten as a kid. I had never gotten, there was something about this physical connection. People will ask me, how did you propose to your wife? And I tell them, at the end of my freshman year, the little stick turned blue. And when you're in a fundamentalist Bible college and you get pregnant, it's bad. And her parents, April's parents were amazing. They did, they did the best they could, honest truth. I can't imagine having gotten that call, but they got a call and her dad was really kind to me, but but in, at that time, you, you, there was just certain things you had to do in moments like that to make things right. And so we immediately, a week later, had this wedding and a little wedding. We really, we couldn't invite any friends. We could just be family. It was at her house. Um, and our, our life together began under the cloud of hearing people say to us, more than one person, that we will have to live with the consequence of our disobedience and that God will discipline us. And you begin to see God's discipline in everything. When my uh, daughter was born, we didn't know this at the time, but years later I'll explain why we found out that she had a, a misogynist doctor, we believe now. And he, he created, the, he, he really physically almost ruined my wife. And she had to have two reconstructive surgeries on her birth canal. And then for, we didn't know any better. We went to the same doctor when my son was gonna be born and the same exact thing happened. Only this time, a few hours after his birth, he, he came and told me that she was bleeding and he would have to do a hysterectomy. My, 21, my 20 year old little wife. And that was the beginning of our life together. My wife went from the most popular girl in her high school and a year later often could not draw the curtains, could go weeks without speaking to anyone but me and entered a depression I've rarely seen. And I didn't realize that all my life I had been trying to hold down a depression and the two of us depressed together and oh my gosh, we could fight. About 10 years later or so, I was teaching somewhere and I was sharing a piece of that story and, and two women came up to me who I did not know. They came up to me afterwards and said, oh my gosh, 
we were nurses at the hospital. I remember your wife, and I remember hearing because we knew that doctor did bad things. And I remember, I remember, and they, they said we ran to try to stop him from doing the hysterectomy, and we were too late. And then just a couple years after that, I was meeting with some girl I had known. I'd gotten a call from a family that I didn't know, but they needed help at the hospital with their, with their daughter who was a senior in high school. And they were in the midst of living with the repercussions of, again, uh, something that feels like obvious malpractice. And that doctor's name came up again. I wanted to be a great Christian. And early on, I experienced that I'm not a great Christian. I felt pretty alone. And I discovered in me, and I still know this about me, that in the midst of my failures, whether they're epic moral belly flops or just the little shameful things I might do, I know in me I have this tendency to run. I have places that are familiar to me that I can go for comfort. You might have those too. It's part of how we manage not being great Christians when we believe we're supposed to be great Christians. And I think all of us have it. It, it, it could be alcohol, it, it could be food, it could, it could be gambling, it can be work, it can be binging on House of Cards, it can be anything. But it's, it's a place where you run. And I think this, this story opens with Peter because that's exactly what he's feeling. He believed in his heart he could, he could pull this off. He knew he could be a great Christian. And then the reality of that moment even though every other disciple is experiencing the same thing. He's experiencing what we do when we label. See, that'd be the other part of this, is I'd be really, I'm really careful, I try to be as careful as I can about any kind of label, even historically acceptable labels. Like, like Peter is known as the betrayer, as the one who didn't, if you ask almost anybody, even people not connected to the Christian faith, they know that Peter was the denier and I'm going, but why is Peter not known as the only one of the 12 that was at least willing to go to the courtyard? But why is Peter not the one who is known as the resilient one who did not let this crush him? Why is Thomas known as Thomas the doubter instead of Thomas the one who's willing to say out loud the things we're all thinking? Because we love to scapegoat. We, we love to label. And the worst labeling is the label we do to ourselves. I am blank. Whether it's good Christian or horrible Christian, neither label is going to be very helpful to you. I know that when I run, that there's a couple of places you won't find me. One of those is anywhere near Jesus. I'm just being, that may not be your pattern. I'm just telling you my pattern. I do not want Jesus around me when I feel filled with shame. I know it's the time I most need Jesus. But I'm telling you, I'm not going to him. And, and Peter could have figured out where Jesus was and gone to hang out. But Jesus, I don't think Peter wanted anything to do with Jesus at this moment. I think that's why he went running. Another thing that you might find helpful as you are managing post-Easter blues or the fallout of trying to be a great Christian 
is you may wanna, um, you may wanna think through a little bit your definition of the miraculous. You see, we, 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 we clearly latch on to, and should, rightfully so, for sure, the, the intervention of God into space and time when we are, in a, in a short period of time, rescued in some way. You see, we, I think that we view the miraculous primarily as something that happens in a very quick moment. And almost always we define the miraculous as some way in which we personally feel better after the miracle. I think that's too small of a, of a definition of miracle. Like even in some Bibles, the heading over this passage is the miracle of the great catch. No doubt, that's a great miracle. You, you throw the, the, the net on the right side and 153 huge fish swim into the net. That's amazing. But that's not the only miracle that night. I mean, I think the bigger miracle is that God spent all night keeping every little fish away from the net. Boo, boo, get away. Don't. I don't know how he does, like little angels in there. I don't know what they're doing. But, but remember, Peter is a professional fisherman. This is not his first time fishing. I don't know this for sure, but I can't imagine he's had a lot of nights where he spent all night fishing and he came home with zero. None. Zip. And nobody's going, what a miracle! No fish! I, I, I'm, I, I'm a little scared that I've, I've driven us into a theological cul-de-sac. All right? <laughs> and I don't know how to get out of it. Because this is where we're going to touch on stuff that's hard. But I, 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 so I'll just own, I, I have some, I think, understanding of how bad things happen in the world. And God's interaction with that and, and consequences and, and choices I've made and all of that. I totally, I, I, but I don't totally get every piece of the puzzle doesn't fit for me. And this is one of those. When we only view the miracle as something good in a moment that feels good. We've made the miracle too small because you see, if that were true, then Was there no miracle in the story of my 35 years of being married to my wife, April? Where we're still trying to figure this out. And I'll be honest with you, it's hard for me because you remember the first thing we read? And I'm going, oh my gosh, Jesus is telling Peter, this is what's gonna happen. Jesus knows the shame that Peter's going to feel. Jesus knows that throughout church history, Peter's going to be known as the denier, and Jesus doesn't stop it. I don't know what Jesus knew. I think Jesus knew all about my wife and getting married and me being incredibly needy and insecure and broken. And, and I think he knew all about in some way what could happen and would happen. I'd love to tell the story of the miracle of winning the, you know, the purity medal. But the miracle is still unfolding over a long period of time. God keeping fish out of the net is just as much a part of his 
work as getting them into the net. God making you with unbelievable talent and beauty and abilities is the same God who made you bad at some stuff. Your inability to sing or draw or write or be smart is not a consequence of the fall only. It is somehow part of his miraculous story of you. The reason I think all of this is important is because it, it, it leads us into this moment, into this encounter with Peter. You see, I believe that we can tell Jesus the absolute truth. I still struggle with that. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you now. I, I, it's silly. I know. Like, I mean, he knows everything, right? He, it's clear in this scripture. He knows everything. But sometimes saying the true thing out loud is hard for me. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Our word love is, whether it's pizza or my wife or my granddaughter, it's all the same word, and it is a hard word. And this is one of those places where maybe the language gives us a little bit of clue. See, it would appear that what Jesus asked Simon was this, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? Do you love me with, with the love that is all in? A love that has nothing to do with anything you will get in return, that is only about me, that is it's sort of a one way. It's in some ways, agape is it, the people call it the highest love. I don't, I don't know necessarily about that. It, in some ways, it's a, it's a colder love. It, it's a love of absolute volition, an absolute one way. It is God's love, not that God isn't also tender and warm, and God, I think, has other parts of the love story with us too, but in this moment, he's saying, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter says, Jesus, I phileo you. I love you like a brother. I love you with warmth. I love you, but the best I can come up with is phileo. And I think Peter is brave. I remember once, I feel like I had this moment that was really similar. I think I've shared this with you guys before, but it was when I was eight years old. I had a stepdad who I had a hard story with, who I don't think liked me. Um, um, I, I think I have evidence to that <laughs> fact. My brother and I were in Florida. We were on vacation and, um, okay, this is in the 60s. So in the 60s, apparently, it was cool to give your kids firecrackers at eight years old and 10 years old and just tell them to go play. And that's what we did. And we had a great time. I'm just going to testify to that right now. I'm kind of missing those days, all right? And these weren't, okay, and these aren't these little wussy firecrackers you guys have been buying. I mean, these are the real things, all right? And you put about six of them together, and you got a quarter stick of dynamite, all right? And we would, we would blow stuff up. We were just going all around this little pl this place where we were staying in Florida, and we would find cans, and we'd make dirt. And we just were having a great time. And I got this brilliant idea. I got this idea. Hey, I said to my brother Lars, hey, why don't you gang a bunch of them together? We'll put them right by the front door. When it blows up, I will run into the house screaming like this. And this will be so funny. 
And I knew that was true because he thought that would be really funny. And there were two of us agree Jesus was there. Okay, so anyhow. And so they, they, we, we light it. I go running into the house screaming. And then when my mom, who shrieks, which was pure delight to an eight-year-old heart, I pull it out and go, ta-da, just kidding. My stepdad beat me like you cannot believe. He, he beat me. And when we got done, he looked at me and he said this. Do you think you will ever do that again? Now, here was my dilemma. Honest truth. You see, I, had, I knew the narrative. I, I, I knew that he thought I was a bad kid. And I kind of believed I was a bad kid. And I thought, yeah, I'm kind of the kind of kid that probably would. And I thought it was an integrity test. And so I thought he wanted me to tell him the truth. And so I did. And he just beat the crap out of me again. And I kind of learned, I've learned it in other places too. Oh, when you think people want the truth, actually what they want is to hear what they want to hear. Actually what people really want is to hear the right answer, not what you necessarily believe to be true. Which is why I, I tell you, Peter is pretty heroic to me because he knew the right answer. If the God of the universe asks you, do you agape me? The right answer is, oh, I agape you. Like if I were to ask any of you, do you love God? Do you love Jesus? I pretty much, we're all going to go, oh yeah, I'm in. I love Jesus. And deep inside we're going, I don't know if I do, but I think that's the right answer. See, it's, 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 it's not a fun reality, but it is the truth. I don't know that I always love Jesus. I know I want to love Jesus. And you see, back to this bad Christian story, you can't say that stuff out loud. You can't say out loud, I don't know that I do love Jesus. I'm freaked out because it looks like everybody else on Easter is really loving Jesus. And inside, I, I know I do and I know I want to, but I don't know that I love him like other people love him. I'm sometimes a little irritated. I'm sometimes mad. And sometimes the story of the story of the story behind my life sometimes hurts and I get mad and I run away and I fill with shame and I don't want to be anywhere near him. But Peter says, you know, Lord, as best I know how to be honest, I phileo you. And here's the best part. And Jesus says, Feed my lambs. I'll take it. I'll take it. That's fine. I, I think we have this sort of, all of us have some sort of internal um, translator, I call it. I'll give you an example. My wife says to me, hey, honey, did you pick up the dry cleaning? And what I hear is, hey, loser, did you once again forget to get the one thing I told you to do today? And I respond sometimes exactly as if that's what I heard. And she's totally freaked out going, whoa, it was your dry cleaning. I don't even care. But I think we have that. And I think sometimes we read stories like this and we have this little internal translator. So I wrote a couple of translations that sometimes I think we hear. One is what I would call my more fundamentalist translation. 
I hear this translation of this story often, and it, and it picks back up. Jesus is on the shore, and, and we're out on the boat, and this is after our bad denial, after our shame. We've run to where we wanted to run, where it's comfortable, and this is what we hear Jesus. And Jesus stood on the shore and was violently screaming at Peter, you quitter! You left me at my lowest moment. You are a coward. And now, instead of you coming to find me, you make me stop what I'm doing to come find you. You were not only a lousy Christian, you were also a lousy fisherman, apparently. <laughs> and I will admit, sometimes I think in our world, there, there is a, an extreme maybe to the other side, where Jesus stands on the shore and, woohoo, boys! Oh, bummer about the fishing. That must be really hard. Tell me about that. Wish I could help, but as you know, I'm merely an historical figure, and I represent the collective goodness of the world, but I'm not really able to help. But hey, just, you just keep being you. You're awesome, just the way you are. <laughs> that one was maybe a little more mean than it needed to be, but anyhow. <laughs> you see, I, I think a big piece of the Bible story that word truth, which can be translated real and honest. Jesus asks him again, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you agape me as I phileo you? And then he asks him a third time and it says that, it says that Peter was hurt. I, I think it reminded him in that moment, again, oh yeah, the three denials and the, the, the pain sometimes of being loved is greater than the pain of being alone. And I think he felt that sting. I've certainly known that sting. You see, I think Jesus just wants us to be more honest. I, I brought some pictures I wanted to share with you. Um, these are some beautiful places in the world. I don't know if you, do you guys recognize that one? That's Machu Picchu. Yeah, an amazing, one of the seven wonders of the world, I guess. And, 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 but the, the views from there, it's unbelievable. Next one is, uh, I think that's, Cop that's Copenhagen. And again, one of the cleanest cities in the world. They, they say that, um, some surveys say the happiest people in the world live in, in Denmark. And it's, just so, it's charming. Everything is charming. Um, next picture is from Rio, and that's pretty iconic. I don't know if you've been there, but you can see from the top at the base of the statue there, you can just see down into the, into the city and into the water. Unbelievable. And the last one, you recognize City of Love. Maybe the most visited city in the world. I don't know that for sure, but in the Western world, I think that's the most visited city. And that's the most iconic part, the most beautiful part. All of those have, um, uh, all those places have something in common. Their beauty, they're, they're fantastic, and they're places we all should go. And they're all places I've never been. Never been to any one of them, but I can sell you on each one of them. I can tell you about how great they are, even though I've never been. You see, I think we, we've sometimes in what we call evangelism, the, the sharing of the good news, I think sometimes we've almost taken up kind of passing out brochures to places we've never actually been or we're afraid to go. But the gospel is about true. 
And you see, one of, the, one of the places we've never been, but we think we're supposed to go, and the way we've tried to sell this Jesus story is this. If you come to Jesus, he's going to make you happier. And I, maybe this is why I'm such a lousy evangelist, because in my heart, I'm going, God, that has not been true for me. And, and I love, like, we're all in the midst of this love fest with Jesus, which is amazing. It is amazing. And it is a beautiful part, but this last little part of the story freaks me out a little bit. When Jesus says to Peter, truly I say to you, when you were young, you would dress yourself and walk where you wanted, but when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you, will not want to, where you do not want to go. And this he said to show by what kind of death Peter was to have to glorify God. Peter, history tells us, was crucified upside down. A gruesome, a gruesome death already, and now maybe made even more gruesome. And Jesus once again tells Peter, and Peter probably is beyond going, yeah, I'm not so sure what you say, Jesus, is really going to come true. Like he's had too many experiences where that didn't work out that well. So now he's actually convinced that the one thing Jesus said would be true is going to be true. You see, the, the end of the Christian experience, the, the, the prize, is not being happier. Yet yeah, that happens to some and comes and goes, but the prize is Jesus himself. I just got back from Oregon where I went to visit my granddaughter. And I will admit my theology has changed by having a granddaughter, for sure. I often will have to read into the scriptures now my Poppy in heaven, she calls me Poppy. Because see, I understand a little bit better. I didn't, I was never around often a dad who would love me. I didn't, I didn't get, I don't get that piece. But, but there's something about my connection with her. And I will admit, while my kids were growing up, I wanted, I still was trying to win the Good Christian Family Award. And I honestly, and so I'll be honest, my little Frankie, she's a hellion. Like, she, she can be naughty. I don't care. <laughs> don't bug me. And when I have been gone, I try to see her every six weeks. And when I've been gone, what I try to do, like this last Tuesday, I flew in and then I, uh, I went to the um, preschool where she's at. And what I usually do is I sneak in so she can't see me. I try to kind of see her first. And then I just kind of just stand there. And she's playing, playing, playing. And then when she sees me, Every time, 100%, she shrieks and she runs full speed and she leaps from about there and just into my arms every single time. And that's our story. Jesus offers us life. And it is it is so amazing that Peter, knowing how he's going to die, lives that life. I don't think it made him happier. It was something way richer than that. I think that's why I'm in. I'm in because in my moments of shame and when the story doesn't make sense and all the jigsaw puzzle 
pieces don't fit. I still have Jesus. And did you notice who was looking for whom in the story? Did you know who initiated the going after? See, I think Jesus will haunt us. (laughs) He's going to stalk you politely, graciously, because he loves you. He loves you. Even when we quit, even when we deny, even when we're lousy Christians. I love, I do love communion. I love that each week I get not only a a reminder, but a do-over. That that the the story of the, the broken body and the shed blood is this amazing love story that is really not about me. It isn't about me being good. You, you, the, the bread doesn't taste better if you had a good week or a bad week. It's there for us. It is there for us to take amazing refuge in the fact that we're not very good Christians when we're honest, but we are immeasurably loved. So on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and said, this is my body, eat in remembrance of me. And then after the meal, it says he took the, he took the cup, which one is wine? I forget. This one's wine, all right? Those of you that can still handle full strength Jesus, that's this one. This is the uh, blood that was shed for you. I always think, Jesus said, this is the, uh, the blood of the new covenant. In, in my mind, I always translate, this is the new deal. The old deal, you felt like was, it was all on you and you had to work really hard and be really good. And if you're lucky, kind of lucky, then God would sort of accept you. And she's going, that's really a bad deal. I'm gonna make a better deal. It's really the deal that's always been. And the deal is this new covenant is it's all on me. I'm going to do everything. And you just have to take it. This will be the juice. There's to my right also a gluten-free option with juice for those of you that would need that. I'm going to pray as Jesus did and thank the Father for this gift. And then I invite you to taste and see that the Lord is good. So Father... Poppy in heaven, the one who loves us, who takes unbelievable delight and joy in our running back to you, who always extends his arms and always catches, we thank you. Free us from the tyranny of trying to be a good Christian and help us be followers of Jesus. Amen. We'll end with this. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen. Amen.